Greetings and welcome to episode 58 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is the U.S. occupation of Japan. Formally, the dates for the U.S. occupation are the end of World War II, 1945, until 1952 with the signing of the San Francisco Peace Treaty. Uh, informally, some people would say that the U.S. occupation of Japan has continued all the way to this date, um, and that Japan, uh, even after 1952, becomes sort of a client state of the United States. Um, that's debatable, but nevertheless, the formal occupation is a fascinating uh, era of about seven years in which we, are, we actually see some pretty sharp shifts and backpedaling uh, against the original goals of the occupation as they were envisioned at the end of World War II. Initially, you're thinking this is going to be very punitive. We're going to change Japan forever. We're going to diagnose, remember, what went wrong, um, and we're going to fix it so that nothing can go wrong again. And then just a few years later, with new developments throughout Asia, you're going to get this uh, 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 momentum for reversing the course that you have already implemented in Japan and saying, whoa, 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 Japan's way too strategic and valuable uh, to sort of keep punishing it and stripping it of all the potential uh, to be a powerhouse once more. Uh, let's reconsider some of the things that we've been doing. Um, and in some key areas, they will do a reverse course and sort of repudiate a lot of the major things that they wanted to do in Japan. But in other areas, it'll prove to be too late. And some key developments that'll occur in the first couple of years of the U.S. occupation will become permanently enshrined, uh, much to the regret of many people in high places who will say, damn it, why did we do that? Uh, now it's really hard uh, to sort of, uh, uh, you know, get rid of this development that we've created. All right. Now, before we get into this, I'd like to open up with sort of a uh, illustrative quote from an American diplomat. In, in October 1945, an American diplomat arrives at his office in Tokyo, and he says, I arrived, quote, just as a Mitsui junior executive was clearing the last items from his desk. Before leaving, the executive hesitated and pointed to a map on the wall depicting Japan's co-prosperity sphere. There it is, he said with a smile. We tried. See what you can do with it. Like nothing else, this brought home to me the vast scope of the occupation and the terrible burdens we had now shouldered. It's actually a pretty... A uh, wonderful quote there, uh, this sense that, you know, you've won the war, congratulations, you defeated us, we surrendered. Now, you have to inherit what we were dealing with. Uh, when we got into Asia and began to displace the Chinese mainland uh, from any sort of uh, sovereignty of its own, whether it's northern nomads or the Chinese heartland, and we assumed control of the resources in the heartland, um, in order to sort of overcome the natural resource constraints of the Japanese home islands. Uh, this is sort of the series of events, the concatenation of events that we found ourselves swept up in, and we found that we had to put our hand almost everywhere. It didn't stop. All right? we, we thought, you know, ta Taiwan was great, but it, it didn't stop with Taiwan. Then it didn't stop with Korea. It didn't stop with Kwantung. It didn't stop with occupied China. It didn't stop with Micronesia. You keep on just taking on uh, new territories, new peoples, and these give you more problems and entangle you with new neighbors that you didn't expect to be entangled with until before you know it. Oh my God, look at this empire that we have. <laughs> How did it get so large? Uh, well, now that's your empire. 
to deal with. Um, and so what we're going to see over this episode, uh, par partly in this episode, but over the course of the next couple episodes as well, sort of from a bird's eye perspective. Remember, I never like to get too bogged down in details, although details and facts are very important. Uh, we always need to make larger sense of them from a bird's eye perspective, whether by accident or design or a little bit of both. The United States will essentially end up recreating a version of the Japanese empire in Asia, minus China, and with a new division of economic and military labor, in which they're basically going to come to the conclusion that we want to recreate everything the Japanese empire had outside of the communist uh, camp. So everything Japan had, except for mainland China, essentially. Um, but now we will provide the military power. We will provide the political guidance and vision and clout for international relations. Um, and you provide sort of an economic base, an economic and uh, geographic, geographically proximate base from which we can then uh, uh, extend American uh, influence throughout Asia. Uh, based in Japan, anchored in a rising like a phoenix from the ashes, Japan. All right. But before we're going to get to that, before we're going to get to sort of the recreation of the Japanese empire under a, an American military umbrella, uh, first we need to deal with conditions in the home islands. We haven't talked about the home islands in a long time, have we? <laughs> right? Uh, what are the conditions in the home islands? Estimates in 1945 are that about 50% of urban Japan has been reduced to cinders by the firebomb raids, uh, not to mention pretty much the entirety of Nagasaki and Hiroshima with the nuclear bombs. Um, all other urban areas, up to 50%, just gone. Ashes, piles of ashes and burnt charcoaled wood. Even worse, the home islands have been severed completely from imports of food, fuel, and raw materials. For the past 50 years, many of these imports had flowed from China and the colonies. Remember, you've already... Uh, revolutionize the uh, uh, economy of the Japanese home islands. The Japanese home islands grow a hell of a lot less rice now than they used to. They don't grow enough rice on Japan to feed all the Japanese people because you had started to import that from your colonies. You forced the other colonies to sort of grow a monoculture of rice or sugar, you know, uh, soybeans, whatever it was. And now uh, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, we, 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 we can't even feed ourselves because we don't have those colonies anymore or the natural resources. We had shifted to sort of this industrialized economy in which we're doing high-level manufacturing. Heavy industry in Japan. Well, heavy industry is great if you're at war. It's not so great if you're not at war and you need to feed your population and give them daily supplies to get by. And so the result is you get a population and an infrastructure on the Japanese home islands uh, that was once, that has been long sustained by empire now, but now must rely on the apocalyptic resource-poor home islands. And it became a common sight for city dwellers cramming into trains to get to rural areas to barter their possessions for food because you have no money, or inflation is out of control, um, and there's no food in the cities because it's not coming in from the colonies anymore. And you have this rare site, instead of usually it's rural people trying to get into the cities, now in the immediate aftermath of the war, it's people in the cities trying to get out of pretty much decimated cities into the countryside where they think I'm going to be able to find food and I can bring you know, my couch, I can bring uh, you know, whatever sort of, uh, uh, you know, household goods and products I have, a, a blanket, a pillow, whatever, um, and take it out 
to the countryside um, and barter this radio uh, for a week's worth of uh, rice. All right. Here's a quote from American occupation authorities about the dire economic situation that they saw in Japan. The loss of its markets and raw material resources in Soviet-dominated portions of the mainland, with highly unstable conditions prevailing in China, in Indonesia, in Indochina, and in India, and with no certainty as to the resumption of certain traditional exports to the dollar area, Japan faces, even in the best of circumstances, an economic problem of extremely serious dimensions. Now, the immediate consequences for the United States was that this is going to cost you a pretty penny. All right. Relief and aid payments to Japan after 1945 uh, began to total about $350 million to $440 million per year. That's almost a half billion dollars. That's a hell of a lot of money in the late 1940s. Okay. Uh, again, this is sort of the shock. You win the war. You're all excited. Oh, we, you know, we occupied Japan and whatnot. And uh, oh, this is what we get in response. Our reward is a half billion dollars that we have to hemorrhage out to Japan just to keep the people, you know, alive. Uh, not even develop the economy. Just sort of a temporary band aid. This is just a temporary band aid. We're not actually solving the problem. And you had the specter of endless subsidies that in the end still might only delay eventual economic collapse of the Japanese home islands. Nevertheless, the United States still insisted on imposing their own monopoly during the occupation. Okay, We saw a little bit of this jockeying around and uh, posturing uh, with the atomic bomb in our, in our, our previous episode, uh, debates over whether or not you know, if we give the Soviets time to declare war on Japan, would that give them leverage to demand sort of you know, two of the home islands will be ours, two of the home islands you can occupy, um, and the U.S. was very afraid of that. And, you know, uh, in the end, uh, strategic considerations trump economic cons considerations, and so you say, yes, it's very expensive, but we want all of Japan for us. Uh, it's worth it. Uh, the price tag is worth it. Um, and so there was a firm insistence that Japan becomes an exclusive U.S. sphere of influence. There's not going to be any zones like you had in Germany. You know, the French zone, the British zone, the American zone, the, the Russian zone, these sorts of things. Um, the Allied powers said, that, I mean, uh, America said that the other Allied powers, uh, it's not just Russia, but that's the main one they're worried about. You also have Britain and whatnot. The Allied powers, they said, were uh, welcomed and encouraged to participate in the governance of Japan, but only in ceremonial and advisory roles. The State Department said nothing should prejudice the dominantly American character of the occupation. All right. So essentially stay out. Yeah, you, you can sort of give us advice, but we're not going to accept it. <laughs> so you're just wasting your time and it's just words on paper. All right. And in fact, the United States was actually surprised that the Soviets, the Russians, were so quick to accept the U.S. terms regarding who is going to be able to occupy Japan. Uh, probably in hindsight, it seems that uh, the Soviets were surprised that they weren't really contested in China, that they did get in on the kill like they wanted to do. They declared war be, uh, on, on the Japanese before the second bomb was dropped, and the Japanese did then uh, wait until after the Soviet shock of the reneging on the non-aggression pact until they surrendered. And that did give the Soviets an opportunity to get their troops on the ground in northeastern China. Um, and there they also find out, hey, we're taking on more than we can chew here. This is an enormous piece of land. We have you know a, a million Japanese expatriates that we have to deal with. Uh, it's also, in a 
state close to economic collapse at the end of the war. And now there's the looming civil war between the Chinese communists and the Chinese nationalists. Um, you know, we, we have our hands full here. And they probably thought the United States was going to contest their occupation of Manchuria. Um, and so, you know, both sides are kind of surprised uh, that they're able to get as much as they're able to get in the post-war environment. And so the Soviets probably thought, you know, hey, we're going to get all of Manchuria, then they can have all of uh, Japan. Both will prove extremely strategic. The Soviet occupation of Manchuria, if you cast your mind back 20 episodes or so on the, on the modern China episodes, uh, recall that will play an instrumental role in helping the Chinese communists defeat Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists uh, because Manchuria was heavy industry. That was the most developed part of the Japanese empire. Um, and you know, if you have access to that, you will have additional advantages in a domestic civil war. Okay. Uh, what are the what is the occupation terminology? What are we dealing with? Uh, the occupation officially uh, was referred to as SCAP. The acronym was SCAP. SCAP. It meant the supreme commander of the Allied powers. Uh, that referred both to the headquarters, you know, sort of the organization of the headquarters and the building that was known as SCAP. SCAP also became a shorthand for you know the head honcho who was in charge of the supreme command, who is the actual supreme commander. It's General Douglas MacArthur. Uh, Douglas. MacArthur works out of the Daiichi Insurance Building, one of the last major structures standing in Tokyo. MacArthur is a formidable presence, uh, quite a big personality, outsized ambitions. If you're, you know, sort of a uh, uh, familiar with U.S. history, you know he's going to eventually overstep his authority and will be seen as a threat uh, uh, to the president. And eventually, he will uh, be uh, embarrassed with the loss of his command during the Korean War when it's seen that he is not following the orders. Uh, you know, to do what uh, the president wants him to do in a war theater. And he's afraid this guy is actually has ambitions to challenge the presidency. Regardless, MacArthur is a formidable presence. He's often at odds with Washington. Um, and he enjoys more or less dictatorial powers in his early years. Okay, uh, he hardly saw any of Japan or the Japanese, just his daily commute from, you know, the military base, wherever he's staying, to the Daiichi Insurance Building. Um, you know, he sees very little of Japan during his time there. He's making big decisions in the comfort of an office. One of the only Japanese that he actually seems to have regular contact with is, not surprisingly, Emperor Hirohito himself, who he comes to have a very positive impression of and believes that Hirohito, the, 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 the image of the emperor, needs to be preserved or else the Japanese will revolt. That's not necessarily an objective reality. Many historians believe that that's not true, and many Japanese would have been okay with the emperor being uh, dethroned, executed, whatever, um, charged as a war criminal. But M MacArthur, perhaps uh, indulging in some Orientalist ideologies, uh, is convinced that the Japanese, you know, sort of this herd mentality, they need a strong autocratic figure to worship, um, and he comes to, to, to be very fond of Emperor Hirohito um, as one of the uh, biggest advocates for keeping him uh, as a ceremonial figurehead and not abolishing the emperor or putting him on trial or anything like that. He's too important uh, for anything like that to occur. Uh, needless to say, those are questionable assertions that many historians tend um, to challenge. One of the more famous pictures that you will see uh, during the U.S. occupation 
is this famous photo of MacArthur standing next to Hirohito, in which Hirohito is in this very formal, stilted uh, pose, um, and um, MacArthur is right next to him in this casual pose, sort of with his his uh, the lower half of his body extended a little bit forward and leaning back casually, um, and not formal whatsoever. And he's also significantly taller and bigger than Hirohito. Looks like he towers over him. You can clearly see the imbalance of power uh, in the U.S. occupation uh, uh, through this photo. All right, now let's talk about the early years. Uh, we're going to have the early years, and then we're going to have the reverse course, and then we're going to have the end of the occupation. Well, the formal end of the occupation, obviously not the end of the sort of informal occupation. There are U.S. military bases in Japan to this day. Uh, the early years, 1945 to 1947. Here you're going to see sweeping liberal and punitive reforms under Douglas MacArthur, under SCAP. All right, the major thrust of the efforts, one, to eliminate and punish militarism in politics, economy, and culture. Militarism is this phrase that sort of, it's subjective, it's ambiguous, but wherever uh, the people in charge think they see evidence of militarism, that's what went wrong, and that's what we have to fix. Uh, two, establish institutions uh, that will make Japan look a lot like America. Uh, open democracy, liberal American values, gender equality, all these sorts of things. Okay. The irony is that in order to have sort of social and political reforms in Japan, it will uh, SCAP will actually end up instituting a hell of a lot of censorship in the Japanese media and in Japanese school textbooks, all in the name of free speech and assembly. In the name of becoming more like America and having free speech and assembly, you can't say this, you can't talk about this, you can't valorize the old, the old empire in this way. A uh, little bit of irony there. Let's start, let's start with politics. There is a broad reconstitution of the Japanese government. First, you create, literally, a new constitution for the post-war Japanese state. This new constitution will strip the emperor of political authority. All right, uh, that's actually a pretty good deal. That's all that happens is that the emperor doesn't have any political role anymore. He's going to go back to pre-1868, the pre-Meiji restoration, in which he's just a ceremonial figurehead who has no power whatsoever, just like he was for the 900 years prior to that. All right. Uh, the new constitution will strengthen the power of the Japanese parliament, which will now have a veto over the executive branch, which it didn't previously have. The executive branch was saying, you know, oh, if a militarist gets into power, then he has too much power and there's no way to rein him in. Well, that's got to end. Um, it'll expand the power of local government throughout Japan and voting rights for the entire Japanese populace. And it will also include the very famous um, and for some people infamous Article 9. What is Article 9? This is the text of Article 9. Quote, Aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes. In order to accomplish this aim, Land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. My God, that is unprecedented to this day. I mean, think of that. You're basically putting an, uh, an article in the Japanese constitution that says you can't wage war as a means of settling international disputes. You can't even have an army. Can you even be a nation? Can you even be a sovereign country if you don't have a military to defend yourself or to potentially resolve international disputes? Some people would say, no, you can't even technically be a country. It doesn't make any sense. Someone will just invade you. The only way Article 9 works in its purity, you know, to actually embody the letter of the law, 
um, is to have another military force that guarantees your defense and your forward policy. And that's essentially the United States military. The U.S. military, we can impose Article 9 on the Japanese. It's intended as a punitive measure at this time period. Remember, something went wrong with Japan. That's the assumption. Militarism is what went wrong. Somehow it got out of control. Article 9 fixes militarism. Does not allow it to get out of control. They'll never have an army. Uh, keep this in mind because in just a few years, many military commanders who were eager to impose this punitive article on Japan will very much regret it and say, what the hell did we do? But regardless, regardless, uh, you can't really be a sovereign nation without military forces. Uh, and uh, Japan, in, in this regard, uh, is, is not. I mean, it is occupied by the U.S. And even after the U.S. formally no longer occupies Japan, its military forces throughout Asia still guarantee its security. And that's very important. Okay. Uh, later on, as we'll see, they will actually tweak this a little bit so that Japan can have what are called self-defense forces. Boy, isn't that a wonderful euphemism. Uh, anyways, all right, a little more on Article 9 later. Um, in support of all these measures, on January 1st, 1946, Emperor Hirohito goes out on the radio and publicly disavows his divinity and accepts a symbolic role. There are, during these two years, purges of approximately 200,000 people who are thought to be associated in some way with past Japanese aggression over the past 50 years, mostly from the military establishment. The Japanese military itself is disbanded. Now, we've talked about before, this is a very dangerous move in many contexts uh, throughout world history. You go into another country, you disband the local military. Uh, if you're not prepared to deal with the consequences, you're in big trouble. The, the U.S. discovered that in Iraq in 2003. Uh, Japan discovered that in Korea uh, in the first decade of the 20th century. Um, and uh, now the Japanese military is disbanded. The big difference here, uh, this is not necessarily a disaster because the U.S. is willing to substitute its own military for the Japanese one, and they tend to be in Japan for the long term. Um, and so you don't see this phenomenon of Japanese soldiers losing their jobs and then taking up uh, arms against the United States uh, for sort of a domestic street war. Uh, that doesn't occur. Okay. Um, now, the civilian government is largely left intact. SCAP, the supreme commander of the Allied powers, uh, SCAP is forced to work through the existing system. I mean, you can disband the military, you can tweak the emperorship, you can create new laws and all that sort of stuff. Um, but reconstituting the bureaucracy, that's pretty tough. That's a big job. So SCAP works through the existing system, which ends up in the end blunting many of the reform efforts, even during this punitive era of the first couple of years. Now, with the economy, during the early first two years, the economy, you're trying to transform Japan from what was once a vast imperial and diversified economy to essentially an inward-looking nation-state uh, whose military uh, uh, guarantee comes from the United States. All right? An inward-looking, self-sufficient nation-state is what you're thinking about in these first couple of years. All right, again, sort of like going back to the Tokugawa era. Let's just sort of act like nothing after 1868 ever happened. <laughs> and let's try to do modernization all over again. Uh, but you're going to sort of socially, we want you back in the Tokugawa era. Politically, we want you back in the isolationist Tokugawa era with a symbolic emperor. And then we're going to try modernization all over again. This time it's going to be purely American modernization. And we'll see if we can sort of uh, make sure that nothing goes wrong this time. <laughs> all right.
So anyways, uh, as part of these new economic initiatives, what America is going to do is they're going to cease war production in the Japanese economy. This means eliminating or reducing the manufacture of iron, steel, chemicals, aluminum, rubber, automobiles, ships, heavy machines. That's a long list. That's a long list. And that is the basis of the home island economy now because raw materials and food came from the colonies. So this is a – if you actually continue to do this long term – it's a major and dangerous overhaul of a Japanese economy. Uh, a sneak preview, the Korean War will essentially uh, uh, encourage a total reverse course of all of this, um, and that'll help out, um, ironically. But at this time, if this were to continue, this probably would have been an economic disaster. There was also a growing idea that Japanese factories should actually be physically disassembled. Or at least, you know, the parts and machines inside should be taken out of these factories, relocated to their former colonies in order to rectify the industrial imbalance. Why should Japan be able to uh, uh, transform their economy to the more sophisticated uh, manufacturing industry and raw materials are going to be the fate of all the other Asian states? We should try to take Japanese factories and plant them in all the other Asian states. Uh, it seems like a crazy idea now, but this was they were very earnest about this idea. In short, Japan must eliminate any industrial capacity that, quote, represents a key phase in the processing of raw materials of any of her neighbors. No incentive for Japan to ever want to process or acquire the raw materials of any of her Asian neighbors. That's the goal there. Okay. Uh, and so the new emphasis, we need to get Japan back to a focus on domestic food production for domestic consumption and light Consumer goods, light industry, not heavy industry, consumer goods. We need them making toothbrushes and toothpaste and toilet paper and, you know, these sorts of things. All right. And then they can export those things to other Asian countries. That's how their economy is going to, to sort of be revamped. And then finally, SCAP also undertakes uh, land reform efforts. Okay, they say that in order to make Japan, the, the Japanese, uh, less susceptible to communist overtures, because now, you know, the communists have the Asian mainland, or at least the Soviets are coming in, and pretty soon they're going to be worried about the uh, nationalists losing the Chinese war and the Chinese communists coming to power. They're saying we need to do something to lessen the appeal of communism for the poor people of Japan, because there's a lot of poor rural people in Japan still. Um, and so they actually undertake uh, land reform efforts. And about 30% of the rural population of Japan does receive more land in these first couple of years under the U.S. occupation. Now we get to the reverse course, which we can define chronologically as 1947 to 1950. As early as late 1946, just a little over a year after the end of the war, the United States SCAP begins to have grave doubts about the wisdom of its initial reform efforts over the previous year. The major geopolitical development on the eve of 1947, the uh, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government is likely to lose the civil war to Mao Zedong's Chinese communists on the mainland. The implications of all this is that the United States, in trying to think about how it's going to uh, uh, extend its influence uh, throughout Asia and dominate East Asia specifically, uh, they were thinking they were going to anchor the new post-war Asian order in a friendly, non-communist China. All right, they assumed Mao Zedong is a Soviet puppet. He doesn't have any original thoughts or you know autonomy. He, 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 is, he is Moscow's puppet. And if the Chinese communists win, that's, that's a victory for the Soviet Union. That, that was the thinking at this time period. It's not true, but that was the assumption. All right, and they wanted Chiang Kai-shek to remain in power, even though they recognized that after the war, his Nationalist Party had become hopelessly corrupt and undisciplined. 
Okay, and so you had this fear that Soviet expansion was interpreted in zero-sum terms. Every communist movement was imagined to be directed uh, by Moscow. All right, if you're a communist leader, you must be in thrall to Moscow. Let me read you a quote from one of the U.S. officials in Japan uh, discussing the possible reverse course that is uh, being contemplated at this time period. A major shift in U.S. policy toward Japan is being talked about undercover. Idea of eliminating Japan as a military power for all time is changing. Now, because of Russia's conduct, the tendency is to develop Hirohito's islands as a buffer state. This is going to have wide-ranging implications. Once you realize that you can't have the anchor of American power in Asia in China, mainland China, which you expected you would because you were friendly with the Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists. You were their ally during the war. And they're one of, they're, they lean more towards the Americans than they do towards the Russians. Now you're thinking, we have to have a new anchor. What's the, ne the, the, the next best spot for us to anchor? Japan. All right, islands removed from the mainland. We can sort of keep it quarantined from communism. And there's a greater economic base to work from in Japan than many other parts of, the, of uh, uh, Asia. All right, so the political implications. The purges of top Japanese officials, that's, it. that's over with. All right, now you're going to switch to purging uh, all kinds of leftist influences because you're worried about the communists. All right, in tandem with those land reform efforts, um, you're going to try to reconstitute some form of a Japanese military. All right, we shouldn't have disbanded the Japanese military. We need these guys, or else we're going to be the only military in all of Asia. These initiatives obviously will butt heads against Article 9, which will now increasingly come to be regretted by many American occupation authorities. All right, and this will be a perennial debate and source of tensions all the way up into this day. You enshrined it in the Constitution. If you weren't totally sure you wanted to do that, you shouldn't have put it <laughs> in the Constitution, uh, Article 9, uh, because that's tough to remove once it's in there. And many Japanese, even those many who were you know, fervent supporters of the Japanese Empire before 45, uh, as time goes on, they'll actually say, you know what? That war, that empire was a disaster for us as well. What good of the Japanese Empire ever came for us? Our, our home islands became devastated. We lost everything. That was horrible. Article 9 is our salvation. This requires the United States to do all the dirty work of having a military and protecting us. How good is that? We don't have to have a military. We'll never be involved in conflicts. And the U.S. military has to do all that stuff for us. And many people in Japan would actually say, you know, a lot of true pacifists, too. Not just sort of cynical, how, how, how can this benefit Japan? Uh, you also get the rise of a generation of true pacifists who grew up under this eventually. And they say, we're not getting rid of Article 9. This is wonderful. It's progressive. If only all countries would have an Article 9. Uh, so once you put that in there, uh, the, the, the genie's out of the bag. Article 9 is tough to undo. And it has not been undone to this day, although there will be some low-level initiatives to try to work around it. Uh, it's still there. It's still there, much to many people's regret, but also to, you know, the happiness of many people who say this is what Japan needs. Uh, it ensures that we will not be firebombed to hell and back uh, again and get entangled in these ridiculous imperial international politics.
Um, also during the reverse course, when you realize you're going to lose China, or at least a friendly China, uh, the International War Crimes Tribunal uh, ends up sort of being scaled back a little bit. Uh, it was originally intended to be much more punitive than it was. Remember the last couple of episodes, when we talked about those atrocities. We talked about how, um, you know, there were a lot of cases and there were some major figureheads who were executed. Um, you had to do that, but it wasn't nearly as punitive. Um, as it could have been. And uh, I actually did some research one time and I wrote this article in which I was looking at the treatment after 1947 of um, Nazi uh, uh, prison guards at various concentration camps, uh, the treatment of them in the military tribunals in Europe versus the uh, treatment at the exact same time period of former Japanese soldiers and officers who had committed known atrocities uh, throughout Asia, particularly in China. Um, and what I was able to find is that, um, you know, uh, Germans, Nazis were being executed um, if they were found responsible for the deaths of just a handful of people in the concentration camps, whereas uh, evidence would be presented in court that would show that uh, various Japanese soldiers or officers had been responsible for brutal, grisly, horrible, premeditated uh, uh, deaths of Chinese, Americans, all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, victims throughout Asia. Um, and it could be 10 times the number of victims of what a German was executed for, and they would get off pretty much scot-free after being in jail for a few years. Uh, they would get time served and say, get out of here. Um, everyone's going to be trying to win Japan's favor now. Okay. Um, not punish them anymore. And the military uh, tribunals will, will be affected by this political shift. Uh, and China too. The Chinese communists, uh, eventually after 1949, they'll also will say, you know what, we have all these Japanese war criminals in our prison still that we captured after the war. Um, we're not going to try them. We're not going to try them. We're trying to curry favor with the Japanese, not make them feel horrible about themselves because that if we curry favor with the Japanese public and show how kind and merciful we are, uh, that'll undermine the foundation of the U.S. occupation in Japan. All right, so all this is a part of the reverse core uh, instigated by the loss of China and rising Cold War tensions with the Soviet Union. The most dramatic changes, however, will occur in Japan's economy. The United States realizes we now need to rebuild Japan's pan-Asian economic role while keeping the military in our hands. This means you have to rehabilitate many of the wartime Japanese elites who had their fingers in a lot of economic pots. Here's a quote from U.S. Army Secretary Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Royal. Quote, the men who were the most active in building up and running Japan's war machine, militarily and industrially, were often also the ablest and the most successful business leaders of that country. And their services would in many instances contribute to the economic recovery of Japan. Right? Political and economic elites are usually one and the same. All right, if you have money, you translate that money into political power or, you know, often military power. Um, and if somehow you got political power without having a lot of money, you're able to translate that political power into economic opportunities. And one way or the other, most people who have economic power also have a degree of uh, political power. Um, and many, most people who have political power have economic power as well. They are one and the same. And the U.S. is realizing this. Uh, Japan's economy is not recovering on its own. We can't have an apocalyptic island nation here that is a net drain on the United States to the tune of half a billion dollars a year. We don't, why, 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 why now do we want to create a self-sufficient, inward-looking Japanese island like the Tokugawa era? Uh, no, we, we, we need something that can support uh, a forward U.S. stance. 
It's going to need to be a more uh, vibrant Japanese economy that is not self-sufficient on the home islands. All right, U.S. aid is an unsustainable sinkhole. That's not going to work. Japan, it was said, quote, simply cannot support itself as a nation of shopkeepers, craftsmen, and artisans, and must increase its mass industrial production. That's what they were good at. That's what they had uh, converted their economy to by 1945. You can't just reverse that out, you know, so, so suddenly. Thus, it goes without question that the original idea of massive industrial reparations to Japan's foreign colonies is now off the table, much to the anger and chagrin of those former colonies. The U SCAP says we can't strip anything valuable from Japanese factories anymore. If we do, the U.S. taxpayer will simply have to replace it through their, their taxes. You know, that half billion dollars a year, that comes from the U.S. taxpayer, <laughs> right? And so if we, every single thing that we strip from a Japanese factory is going to be uh, something that we're just going to have to replace, or we are, uh, uh, you know, destroying Japan's ability to be economically self-sufficient. So they came up with a really insulting solution to Japan's former col uh, colonial leaders. They said we're going to do a symbolic one-time transfer of about 16,000 insignificant machine tools from various factories and nothing more. So you can say you got something. You know, you got something from Japan, but it's all, it's, you know, it's a pittance. And we know that about 90% of the originally envisioned heavy industrial reparations, you know, the dismantling of factories and relocating them and, and you know, Burma and Indonesia and, you know, the Philippines uh, were, sent, were just basically canceled. Um, obviously, this is not going to contribute to any sort of fondness that Asian countries might have for Japan. With the exception of Taiwan, most Asian countries do not have fond memories of Japanese occupation or Japanese rule, even if some of their political elites do, did work with the Japanese, benefited from it, and liked the Japanese, they're still a minority of the population for the vast majority of the masses in all of these places except for Taiwan. It was a pretty miserable experience to be ruled under the Japanese in a wartime environment, okay, or in Korea in those particular circumstances. Um, and this doesn't help. This doesn't help. You're letting them off the hook. After all the shit they did to us, now you're letting them off the hook? You gotta be kidding me. But how do you solve the problem of refacilitating Japanese access to raw materials that will be needed for industrial production? This is where the fateful link which, with U.S. involvement in Southeast Asia will be made. It all comes together here. You connect the dots and you see where the Vietnam War eventually connects in with the legacy of the Japanese Empire being assumed by the United States. Now we get to the importance of Southeast Asia. And the U.S. was going to imagine what they called the Great Crescent, like a crescent moon that would extend and sort of uh, uh, contain communism on the mainland. All right, China fell. Uh, Russia obviously fell a long time ago, but we can keep everything uh, in Southeast Asia and all the islands. This crescent moon from Japan in the Northeast through, you know, the Ryukyus, through Taiwan, the Philippines, Indonesia, and then down to mainland Southeast Asia, Malayan Peninsula, uh, Thailand, Burma, uh, India, um, Indochina. These will all be sort of in the American camp and their economic industrial base will be Japan, all right? So Japan, they said, can't depend on U.S. imports. She can't pay in dollars, and this creates a massive trade imbalance. Japan needs Asian trade partners, but communist China is unacceptable. We're not going to let them have a relationship with communist China. 
So U.S. policymakers concluded that the next closest non-communist market was Southeast Asia. Problem with Southeast Asia is that you had a legacy of the Japanese eradication of European imperial authority, which had fostered new resistance, author uh, uh, new resistance forces against the reestablishment of the Western colonial powers. Indonesia and Indochina had some of the highest degree of, of uncertainty in this regard. Uh, you know, sort of the inability for the Westerners to come back and say, okay, we're back. I know we, the Japanese essentially kicked us out, uh, but we're back and we're ready to take over the reins just where we left off. And it doesn't work like that. You've been delegitimized. You've been humiliated and your forces have been kicked out. You have to reestablish power almost from scratch uh, over a people now who uh, look at you very differently than they did before the Japanese kicked you out and saw you tuck tail and run. Okay, the French and the Dutch will try to return to Indonesia and Indochina, but neither will succeed in restoring a stable power base. All right, so the U.S. gets intimately involved. I say we need both of these states on friendly terms in order to create the great anti-communist crescent. Dutch Indonesia is resolved the quickest. Remember Hatta and Sukarno, those two leaders that the Japanese tried to work with, but were also very wary of. Um, the Americans said, okay, Hatta and Sukarno, they're, they're, they're suitable. They aren't communists. That's good. And the Dutch, the Americans said, the Dutch don't have a whole lot of leverage. This empire is over. <laughs> the Dutch need to go back to Europe. Uh, we don't think the Dutch have much leverage to try to reassert their control in Indonesia. They will try to do so. But the U.S. will implement, uh, uh, they will apply continuous pressure to the Dutch to relinquish control of Indonesia. Um, and the Dutch will finally do so in 1949, and Indonesia will finally get its independence, all right, um, and be nominally friendly to American influence. Not total puppet or anything, but uh, nominally friendly. Indonesia is a complicated, vast, diverse place. French Indochina is a much more thorny problem. Uh, France had a bit more leverage, okay, with the United States. You need French help to stabilize Europe. The Netherlands was less important in this regard, okay? And the French and the British need Southeast Asian markets to recover. I said, all right, France and Britain, these are our huge big allies in the post-war order. Um, and they tell us they really need uh, access to India, to Burma. The French really need Indochina. We didn't think that the Dutch really needed Indonesia. Uh, it's a relatively small country in Europe. Um, and, you know, they have less leverage over us. We don't think the Dutch are going to be all that essential to reestablishing a U.S.-led order in Europe. The British and the French are much more important. Well, in that regard, then, you have to have more respect for the imperial agenda of the British and French in Southeast Asia, right? Um, and when the U.S. looks at Vietnam, at, at Laos, at Cambodia, which is French Indochina, they see, all right, if we don't work with the French, if we do what we did in Indonesia and, you know, pressure them to get out, we could do that. Um, they don't have a Hatta and Sukarno who look like they're ready to take over the reins of the country who are non-communists. The major alternative to the French in Vietnam is a communist insurgency. That's what looks like is gaining power. As a result, U.S. President Truman is not willing to sort of contravene French policy in Indochina, despite major U.S. misgivings. We think the French are really, you know, out of their minds. They're, this is not going to work. All right, this, this, is, this, this is a quagmire. Uh, it's clear that the locals, the Vietnamese, don't want them there, but the French aren't willing to give this, this valuable colony up. 
Um, and yet we can't support anyone else because we need French help in Europe. Um, and uh, the alternative to the French appears to be a communist insurgency in Southeast Asia. So Truman says, um, we're going to promise gradual self-governance in, South, in uh, French Indochina. You know, he urges the French, promise gradual self-governance to the Vietnamese, the Laotians, the Cambodians, but nothing anytime soon until, unless, a non-communist alternative emerges. All right, the ultimate U.S. calculus here is that Southeast Asia is now a pivotal component of this great crescent, anchored in an economically vibrant Japan. All right, Japan's got to take the economic lead in Asia, and then the U.S. will sort of lay on its veneer of military political power throughout Asia. Uh, but they need to you know, anchor the new economic world order, post-war order in Asia, in the most advanced economy, and that's Japan. Well, Japan needs trading partners. It needs raw materials. And now we realize it was stupid to try to punish Japan and strip her of all you know, ability to conduct business. We need to link her with Southeast Asian markets, just like before, just like the empire. This is so ironic. But we're going to be in charge this time. It won't be Japanese troops or Japanese advisors. It'll be the Americans. And for now, we have to sort of work and back with the French in order to achieve this long-term goal. So the U.S. quagmire in Vietnam actually begins with its interest in Japan as early as 1947. See, this is a perspective you don't see usually on documentaries and books about the Vietnam War. Uh, the French will be in there and whatnot, but you don't necessarily see the connection with the legacy of the Japanese Empire and the U.S. Uh, occupation in Japan. What are the French encounter in Vietnam from 1946 to 1954? They're in a war with the guerrilla forces, the communist guerrilla forces of Ho Chi Minh. And the French and the Americans, they just assume Ho Chi Minh, you know, his insurgency, it's Moscow directed. He's just a puppet. They can't be, you know, sovereign or have any autonomy whatsoever. Just like Mao. They're all Soviet puppets. All right. The U.S. is also dismayed at the French-sponsored alternative to Ho Chi Minh. Because the French are going to say, you know, we're going to promise gradual self-governance. But right now it's not stable enough. But who is going to be in our place? Who do we set up as an alternative to Ho Chi Minh when we say we're eventually going to leave? The French find this guy, a descendant of the Vietnamese royal line, a guy by the name of Bao Dai. Bao Dai. He's another one of these political exiles, like Ahmed Chalabi in the Iraq War in 2003. Uh, someone who spent a long time in exile from their country. Uh, they, they, you know, they haven't been in power, had any real influence in a long time. Oftentimes they've lived in exile, luxurious exile usually. Uh, Bao Dai has lived in uh, lavish exile in Hong Kong and the Riviera uh, for a lot, you know, the French Riviera for a long time. He has no popular support. He has no army back in uh, uh, Vietnam, but the French feel like he's our man. We, you know, we can work with him. He's uh, pliable, but his pliability to you is exactly what makes him, uh, you know, not viable to gain the loyalty and support of the Vietnamese. This is a common problem you see over and over again. Uh, if someone is too much enthralled to an outside power, no one truly believes that they have any real autonomy and they're not going to follow him. U.S. views of Bao Dai, is a great quote, a dissolute playboy in the pay of the French, whose total loyal following probably comprised some half dozen Hong Kong concubines. 
<laughs> Isn't that a wonderful quote? Uh, unfortunately for the U.S., Bao Dai is what the French have decided to uh, hold up as uh, their successor in Vietnam. And the U.S. has, you know, reluctantly concluded that we have to back the French if we don't want to have Vietnam fall to the communists, then we can't let it fall to the communists because we need a great non-communist crescent uh, to anchor Japan as the basis, the economic basis of the U.S. empire in Asia after World War II. All right. Now, from 1950 until today, essentially, the Phoenix Rises, the last phase. June 25th, 1950, North Korea invades South Korea, and this becomes the catalyst for a total reverse course of the U.S. occupation. Within days, the United States, uh, with, through, through the United Nations, commits ground troops to Korea, naval units to Taiwan to ensure that Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government will not be invaded and conquered by the uh, Mao Zedong's communists from the mainland. And then they say we're going to give increased assistance to the, the French in Indochina. If they're going to go with Bao Dai, then I guess Bao Dai is our man as well. Damn it. But this is what you have to work with if you're irreconcilable with communism. All right, the Chinese nationalists on Taiwan, as we've had many occasions to talk about in this podcast series, are essentially saved by the Korean War. All right, as an unintended result of uh, Stalin and Mao Zedong agreeing to give Il uh, Kim Il-sung the green light to invade South Korea first. Uh, they actually had a discussion about this. Uh, you know, um, the three the major communist leaders, Kim Il-sung, Mao Zedong, Stalin in East, in East Asia, uh, we're debating, are we going to let the Mao Zedong communists invade Taiwan first or North Korea invade South Korea? Um, and Mao Zedong himself even agreed. I'm sure he regrets this decision. He even agreed, let the North take South Korea first because Taiwan, uh, we're, we're not quite ready for it yet. All right. In early 1950, the communists have just taken over in October of 1949 uh, on the Chinese mainland. And they said, you know what? This is Chiang Kai-shek's last stronghold. He's going to fight to the death. He has a massive military. Um, we need a little more time for preparation for Taiwan. So why don't you go ahead and take South Korea first, not realizing that that would be the catalyst for the United States to essentially say, all right, that's it. We can't lose any more communist territory. Our great crescent anchored in Japan depends upon stopping communism everywhere, or it's not a great crescent anymore. And the great crescent, you know, begins with Japan, goes through Korea, um, and uh, ends, you know, sort of in Vietnam. It's the two tips of the crescent that are going to define the 1950s, the 1960s, these great horrible wars that are going to occur in Korea and Southeast Asia and Vietnam. Um, and they both have intimate connections with the U.S. reverse course and their, their agenda um, in Japan the, uh, uh, during the occupation of Japan. Chinese communists, uh, sorry, Chinese nationalists, Chiang Kai-shek on Taiwan, are not the only ones to be saved by the Korean War. Uh, ironically, it's this vicious war that kills you know, tens of thousands of people, uh, but some, some people benefit quite well from the Korean War, the Japanese economy. Japan itself is saved by the Korean War. I cannot underscore this point enough. The U.S. needs a heavy industry base in a friendly Asian state in reasonable proximity to Korea to finance and support its war. Japan fits the bill. I mean, you can't find a better support logistically, militarily, industrially, economically for the war in Korea. Remember, Korea is the dagger pointed at Japan. <laughs> Remember, that was a, 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 a saying that the Japanese had in the, in the late 19th century, why they needed to take over Korea. It's right there. And Japan has now 
the heavy industry customer to replace its own defunct imperial self as the previous customer. Japan's economy was oriented precisely towards this, towards heavy industry, towards supporting a war. That's what the Japanese co uh, economy was oriented towards. But it was its own consumer in the old days. Now the war is over. Yes, much of Japan is devastated, but you can, if you have support, if you have the investment to do it, you can get those factories back up and running pretty quickly. And the U.S. will now be the new customer, whereas Japan was its own customer before. U.S. heavy industry orders will reach $860 million a year after the Korean War breaks out. All right, remember, this puts to shame that half billion dollars. It's almost a billion dollars in its own. On top of that, that was just the aid. Now, this, is, this isn't just aid where you throw a Band-Aid at something. All right, this is organic. This is kickstarting the entire economy by getting those factories up and running and purchasing all the, the tanks and the Jeeps and the radio transistors and you know bullets that are coming out of the Japanese factories. You're invigorating the whole Japanese economy. You're the new imperial military customer that Japan used to provide for itself. By 1954, the United States has spent $3 billion in 1950s money. That's a hell of a lot of money in 1950. $3 billion. There's your Marshall Plan for East Asia, <laughs> right? The Toyota Corporation was on the verge of collapse and exploring a merger with Ford in Detroit when U.S. orders for Toyota trucks became, quote, Toyota's salvation, despite the CEO's guilt that he was, quote, I was rejoicing over another country's war. <laughs> You'll find out many powerful, famous Japanese companies today uh, were on the verge of total ruin and collapse in 1945, and it was only with the outbreak of the Korean War that they were not only saved, but completely reinvigorated on the way to, you know, riches beyond their wildest dreams, a better situation than they ever had during the Japanese Empire. The president of the Bank of Japan called the Korean War, quote, divine aid, sort of like the same divine aid that uh, helped the Japanese push back the Mongols, push back the Mongols back in the 13th century when the, the Yuan Dynasty, Kublai Khan, tried to invade the Japanese islands. A Japanese journalist later recalled, that all the businessmen of Japan shudder at the thought of Japan's likely fate if there was no Korean War salvation. So what you get is you get five years of U.S. military orders that will be instigated by the outbreak of the Korean War on Japan's doorstep. And then that will then be continued by the Vietnam War, which picks up, you know, five years after that. When the U.S. gets involved, not just the French, that will create a stable, large, continuing demand for high-tech, heavy industry export goods to the United States, and then by extension, the U.S.-led order in Europe as well. That's a massively lucrative market. China is not available? Well, this is the next best thing. And you have global power now that can actually maintain your artificial economic connections outside of Asia. You also get orders for non-lethal goods, too, with direct civilian counterparts. Clothing, electronics, transport vehicles, the stuff that you're manufacturing to be blown up on a battlefield in Korea or Vietnam. You, 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 you can also manufacture similar stuff for the domestic market in Japan or for export to the United States or to Europe. 
All right, clothing, electronics, transport vehicles. This is going to be the sort of relationship that will stimulate the Japanese uh, technological economy in the 50s, 60s, 70s and lead to things like Nintendo. Right? Nintendo is a wonderful example of sort of uh, low-tech you know, gaming goods that are able to experiment and hit it big uh, by having access to consumers in wealthy first world countries, which in turn makes Japan uh, or is able to sustain Japan's status as this wealthy, developed first world country as well. And all this allows Japan to overcome the artificial commercial separation from East Asia, from mainland China, that had been imposed upon it by the United States. Look like a death wish. Um, and all these wars that the U.S. is going to be involved in, which you could think of as an extension of the Japanese empire. The J Japanese were involved in a whole bunch of wars in Asia in order to protect their economic interests. Now the U.S., in order to protect their political and economic interests in Asia, they're getting involved in all of these wars. This catalyzes the economic miracle in the 1960s, but only so long as the U.S. is willing to keep Japan oriented away from China. The new relationship, U.S. military plus Japanese economy equals the restoration of the Japanese empire minus China under U.S. guise. The Korean War will also set the stage for the termination of the U.S. occupation and the signing of peace and, defe and, and defense treaties with the United States. Japanese leaders are now more willing to cede control over Okinawa, which the U.S. has uh, kept separate from the home islands, uh, in order to enable long-term U.S. bases. Now that they have a North Korean threat right on their doorstep, they say, okay, uh, we're willing to cede control over Okinawa. You can have that for your, your, your military bases to help protect us. And once in turn, once the United States is assured of Japan's intent to sign bilateral defense treaties with it, Washington is willing to end the occupation. We'll end our forcible occupation of Japan if we know that you're going to uh, you know, willingly, voluntarily allow us to have bases in Okinawa and on the home islands to uh, you know, pursue our interests throughout Asia. This leads to the San Francisco Peace Treaty implemented in 1952. The messy World War II legacy and Cold War politics will also result in a, di a disinvitation to both Koreas and China uh, at the San Francisco meeting. And the Soviets don't sign either. They're all going to have to come to their own terms with Japan. Japan will then also reluctantly submit to U.S. demand for modest rearmament. First, a national police reserve of about 300,000 to 350,000 officers. Um, eventually, they're going to create what's known as the Japan Self-Defense Forces after 1952, which is essentially an army. Uh, Navy, Air Force, uh, Army uh, that uh, is you know, constrained by Article 9. You can't wage offensive war. You can't join wars overseas. But essentially, uh, you know, it's an army. If Japan ever needs to, it just immediately turns this army to offensive purposes. Japan has the technical know-how and the resources to create nuclear weapons if they wanted to. They could easily create them if they have a need to do so. If the U.S. were to ever withdraw its military support, Japan also then has the, you know, the euphemism of a self-defense force. There's going to be a perennial debate over Article 9. For now, it's in place. Uh, but there's sometimes world events that occur, uh, such as the Iraq War, in which, you know, Japanese troops will be deployed over there for non-combat purposes. And some people will sort of salivate at that and say, oh, Japan's finally going to have an opportunity to become an offensive force again. And others say, no, this is not allowed by Article 9. You can't do that. That's a debate that's going on. Okay. The cumulative portrait is that Japan becomes a client state of the United States even after the occupation is over. Um, and what essentially you're seeing, if you're in a bird's eye perspective, Japan 
succeeded the nomads of the pre-modern era in seizing the Chinese heartland resources for their empire. Now the U.S. is seizing Japan's old empire outside of China as a base for their Asian empire. It's only the economic rise of China in the past couple decades of our lifetimes that has changed the center of Asian gravity and ended the tradition of outsiders using the Chinese heartland as a base for a vast multi-ethnic empire extending far outside the Chinese heartland. And the rise of China has also disrupted the U.S. policy of anchoring its, its, its East Asian agenda uh, in the Japanese islands as well. This is all in flux now, but for a good solid 50 years after the end of World War II, the U.S. occupation of Japan uh, followed along these contours. And you can see how it links to all the major wars that occur too, Korean War and Vietnam War. All right, next time. How were these sort of post-war traumas and developments dealt with by the Japanese? Let's get back to some culture and see how the end of the Japanese empire was expressed through film. Please join me for Japanese film and the end of empire in episode 59 of Beyond Huaxia. 